Hi, I'm Tom Colessa, a retired elementary school counselor from northeastern Pennsylvania. I first met Steve Paragas about 20 years ago. A friendship was easily established. At that time, I did not know that Paragas Northwood Company existed. Around 2002, a friend of mine and I decided to do a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters. This was my second time to this area. This time, we chose Paragas Northwood Company as our outfitter. What a treat. Top shelf gear, a super lightweight Kevlar canoe, and almost gourmet food. Best of all, the outfitting department took care of permits, shuttles, but most of all, precise trip plans. For the past 10 years, I've traveled from northeastern Pennsylvania for an early season smallmouth bass fishing trip. We spend one week, late May, in the beautiful Boundary Waters. Pre-planning a trip is an integral part of any trip. Everyone at Paragus Northwood Companies makes me feel like the most prized and valued customer. Paragus Northwood guides are much more than a person who takes you into the Boundary Waters. They treat you with concern for safety, comfort, food, good preparation, but their utmost quality is they know how to fish and are willing to share their knowledge with you. Nothing better than a sore arm from catching fish, great campsite, and great food. Paragus Northwoods, Steve, Nancy, Ellie, just do a great job. Uh, if you're looking for a great adventure, there's certainly people to choose. Welcome, Zero and All We're Not, to episode 84 of the WTIP McClough Boundary Waters Podcast. podcast. <laughs> Well, that was new. Oh, gosh. You did want it to sound like Radio Lab. <laughs> no! <laughs> was your idea. Oh, well, I don't know. You know, we got to keep it, keep it interesting for folks and ourselves. We're mixing it up today. We're going to talk about everyone's favorite topic, climate. Boundary. Oh! <laughs> climate change? Climate change and the boundary waters. Well, at least it's about the boundary waters. Yeah, we're going to talk about the woods, the water, and how it might be changing according to scientists. Maybe how it already is. You've probably heard about this. If you pay attention to anything related to the Boundary Waters, you've heard that there's the likelihood that in the next ad, your choice, how long you think, or whoever is quoted more recently, if it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 80 years. But the wilderness is going to change, and whether it's exactly tied to... Human behavior is no longer really up for debate. Exactly. And, if, you know, I, kn- I think we know our listeners fairly well. There's definitely going to be things on here that you have heard many times before. There's probably we'll hear some things that are a little bit new or some new spins on it. But you're also going to hear a very real conversation between Joe and I. Yeah. About what it's like to actually have to deal with all of this information all the time. About places that we love. Anthony, in the last 10 years, I've interviewed people who are experts, scientists about climate change and weather and all of that. The whole industry of climate change awareness is full of hypocrisy and it agitates people. And it agitates me. The copper nickel mine that could be used for renewable energy agitates people because you need those minerals to do the things that you say you want to say the planet it's enough to make somebody want to just crash through a window because 
We've heard it for a long time now. Right. So without getting too far ahead of ourselves, you selected some very important guests for this episode, and they're going to talk about this. Climate change. And we're going to get into everything you're talking about, because as humans, it's always more complex than a headline. It's always more complex than your five talking points in an email, because we're complicated and we're hypocritical. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's hear from our first guest and see what's going on. This is Peter Reich. Uh, I'm a forest ecologist who's been working on climate change impacts on northern forests for decades. I'm a regents professor at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Forest Resources, but I'm also the director of the new Institute for Global Change Biology at the University of Michigan. We're familiar with the neck of the woods, and we've been doing research in and around the Boundary Waters for decades in our research group at the University of Minnesota. So I've spent time in many areas of the Superior National Forest, including the Boundary Waters, and done a couple of uh, canoe trips uh, into the Boundary Waters. And uh, also uh, into the Boundary Waters quite a few times because we've had, we've had research sites there. We love cross-country skiing, and so we've spent a lot of time in various cabins right on the edge of the the Boundary Waters and done skiing in or near the Boundary Waters. And as well in the summer, uh, it's a fantastic place to, to get out and, and canoe and be away from, from most of the noise of civilization. You should be concerned because with oncoming climate change, the forest is going to itself change and not necessarily for the better. Uh, you know, like not all change is bad. As humans, we're, we're kind of built to resist change. Um, but in this case, because the forests are not likely to have a smooth transition from one kind of forest that we have learned to love to another that we might love and that might provide ecosystem and economic services to all of us, um, the, the forest is going to struggle with climate change uh, in terms of It's maintenance of biodiversity and and all those services I just talked about. Okay, this is a real topic. It's a hard topic and it's a complex topic. And to be honest, I don't even get excited to talk about it in the way that I get excited to talk about what we normally talk about, which are being in the wilderness. Yeah, adventures, stories, memories, experiences. But we're diving into it a little bit today, and you've got a good reason for it. The reason that I wanted to talk about climate change is because it keeps surfacing in publications that get sent to us at WTIP or that have a connection to the Boundary Waters. There's the news from late January where the U.S. Department of Interior issued a 20-year mining moratorium, a ban, as it was called by many people, uh, for 225 thousand acres of federal land near the boundary waters. Some people viewed that through a political lens and had a very strong reaction to it, either in celebration or being very upset about it. So there's like all kinds of news about the boundary waters happening right now. And some of that is an offshoot of climate change. Well, yeah, the boundary waters, the environment, protections, fear, lots of fear and the messaging. Right. Or, Grim outlooks, maybe that's another way to think of that, is that if climate change continues, if the earth 
continues to warm and just the weather patterns change at the rate that they are, climate, that the forest is going to be altered in pretty dramatic ways. So here's Peter talking more about that. Well, the forest is already changing in the sense that we can detect certain iconic species not doing as well as they once did in terms of how fast they grow or how much they reproduce or how well they survive. Um, and although these are subtle today and someone who's not an expert isn't going to be canoeing or cross-country skiing and ne necessarily notice um, they will notice as more and more trees die from direct effects of climate change, which include summer droughts and uh, also indirect effects such as heightened numbers of insects and diseases and wildfires. And so 10, 20, 30 years from now, greater number of areas within the boundary waters are going to have lots of dead trees from one or many of those combinations. And although tree death and forest death and regrowth is, you know, part of nature's cycles. Uh, the fraction of the landscape that at any one point in time is dead or dying is going to be a lot higher in the future. And subsequently, because the natural replacements, especially species like fir or spruce, which have been around for millennia, are not going to be doing as well. And so we may have forests which don't recover the way they did in the past. And in place of those spruce and fir, we may have some non-native exotic shrubs like buckthorn and honeysuckle that most of us don't really enjoy from a recreational or aesthetic standpoint and also have negative ecological consequences for the rest of biodiversity. And so I don't think anyone is looking forward to boundary waters with lots of buckthorn interspersed with dead and dying uh, fir and spruce. All right. So that's Peter. Clearly, he knows what's up. These guys are field scientists. Yeah. And they go into the boundary waters. They've done extensive research inside the boundary waters canoe area wilderness. So if you ran into them, they'd be just like you and I. Yeah. They'd probably have a notebook or some sort of a extra Duluth pack full of random scientific gear and so forth. So can we get into some of the nitty-gritty about how we're seeing it change? Because it's happening, right? Well, like the oak trees that we saw on the Anglewarm Trail or... Or on Knife Lake Portage. Right, because Peter and Lee Freilich, his associate, who they've done a lot of research, including this 2011 report that made headlines from the Washington Post to the Star Tribune to WTIP continue to cite that, that say the boundary waters will shift from boreal forest to an oak savanna in 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. That, it's a big window. Exactly. And that's, I think, part of the situation that has people not too concerned necessarily in their day-to-day. -day. Well, I'm not seeing I'm not seeing much change. A campsite on Horseshoe Lake looks the same as it did eight years ago when I was there. Or... 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But change happens slowly. Well, that's a great question. Your question about inevitability. Well, change is inevitable. But where we are and where we go on that entire continuum or spectrum of change is still 
not set. So, so certainly the forests are going to change at this far southern end of this fantastically diverse and complex boreal forest, which southern end is in northern Minnesota. Certainly spruce and fir are going to decrease in numbers and importance in, in the decades to come. How fast those effects permeate further north really contingent on how fast we slow down and stop climate change. And so I actually am an optimist, despite all the changes we've seen, because I think we will reach a tipping point in human society where we no longer think it's okay to just let climate change because of the negative consequences for both people and nature, both locally and around the world. And given that actually it's in our economic best interest to stop climate change, it's really a no-brainer that we actually do it once we decide to, because in fact it saved us money, you know, in the medium term as well as the long term. So the whole notion that, oh, we can't save, stop climate change and save the boundary waters and save nature because it's too expensive is, is wholly fictional. In fact, um, we will have a poorer economy 10, 20, 30 years down the road if we don't stop climate change and let our let nature degrade than if we simultaneously stop climate change and help preserve much of nature's diversity and function. We don't even really think about weather the same way that these guys do. We often associate a winter as either being a cold winter or a mild winter, snowy winter, and sort of equate that into, well, yes, I guess climate change is sort of happening. But it's so much more widespread than that. In fact, I talked with the state's climatologist, guy Pete Boulay, works for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. He's the state's assistant climatologist. He breaks it down like this when we're talking about weather and climate. Let's just hear what he has to say on that. So, so the difference between weather and climate is weather is what you're wearing today, and climate is all the clothes in your closet. So there's a lot of variety of what can happen during a year, of course. So you might need to wear something better something warmer, something colder to go outside. So weather is what's happening right in here today. When you look out your window, that's the weather. Climate is we take it all together over a period of years and compare it today to that. So uh, you might hear the word normal talked about when you watch the, watch the weather, listen to the weather you know, compared to normal. That is a 30-year average that's recalculated every 10 years. So right now, you know, our current normal uh, is 1991 through 2020. So in another 10 years, we'll have a new normal. And we've seen that these normals over time have increased uh, in general for temperature in the winter um, and also in general have gotten wetter. So that's Pete Belay, state climatologist here in Minnesota, talking about the difference between climate and weather. Matthew, you and I used to talk to a guy named Tom Beery who worked in Duluth. Until he moved to Finland. (laughs) Sweden. Ah, Sweden. Yeah, he moved to Sweden. Uh, He worked at Minnesota Sea Grant. He used to make a similar comparison about climate and weather and break it down in the using examples that your brain can understand in an easy way. I mean, even that's been said so many times that I think most people now do understand that. That climate is change over time. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't necessarily see it, but we can measure it. Right. And that's, that's... I think widely understood at this point. Yeah. What this episode is about isn't necessarily that the climate is changing and that people have done things to the atmosphere that have been damaging. That's all 
scientifically studied. And again, if that's an issue or something that you don't necessarily relate to in any way, hopefully you can find some research somewhere that'll help you understand it. I imagine anybody who's still listening at this point is on board, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. Or at least uh, making notes to debate us down the road at Canucopia. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But so if that's, I think the real question, I mean, this is the one that I deal with. It's like, okay, it's changing. We can't change it. Or maybe we can. I often feel like, all right, well, it's just, it's changing. That's it. It's done. Okay. Like, you know, I don't feel like I have a lot I can do about it. Well, let's hear a clip from Peter, who spent a lot of time studying climate and how it's going to reshape the boundary waters. And I think that this might be a major snag in the whole, how does this impact me and what can I do about it? Here's what Peter had to say. And so there's things we can do as individuals that are individually based, but also societally based. So as individuals, we can, of course, do all the things we all know about, you know, reduce food waste, turn off the lights, uh, use greener energy, uh, insulate your house, uh, use, if you need to use a car, get one that has fantastic mileage or is an EV and make sure you're buying renewable energy to fuel your EV, uh, you know, all those kinds of things. Use mass transit, um, fly less, fly as little as possible, um, et cetera, et cetera. And those things, obviously, you doing that or me doing that on our own isn't going to save the world, but if we all do it, or enough of us, it helps. And it also starts to change how we as societies view social norms. You know, there's words we can't, that we used 30 years ago that we don't use now because we view them as inappropriate. Um, and so just like we might look back now and say, how did our society allow X to happen, or how do we, you know, we treated Native Americans, we treated uh, African Americans in the past. 50 or 100 years from now, our great grandkids may look back and say, how did those people in 2014 think it was okay to drive their car, you know, up to the boundary waters all the time without giving a thought of how often they were doing it? And so, you know, even going to the boundary waters has a, a trade off there in the sense that we are burning. Uh, some kind of fuel and energy to get there. And so we just have to keep this in mind and try to reform how we live our lives. You know, not that we stop all travel and stop you know, using energy, but use it in a more efficient and, and better way. Um, so that's at the individual level. But also at the individual level is, is we collectively shape our governments and our business communities and our industries. So when Peter told me that, when I'm speaking with him, it gave me pause because let's use this winter, for example. January, we hit this nice stretch in the middle of January, January 14th, and we reached out to our buddy Eric Dickus in Omaha. said, the conditions are perfect. You should come up right now, drive up here from Omaha. We're going to go in and do this winter camping trip and catch lake trout. Boom, boom, boom. The wheels are in motion. Okay, I can do it. Drives up from Omaha, parks at the house. We take two different vehicles. We park. We walk in, drive out. He drives home. 
Not once, not one single time did you or me or Eric think, should we do this trip because we're emitting all this CO2 by driving our vehicles? Not once. It's just not the way that people, even people who care about the Boundary Waters, think about a trip. There are values that are at odds in that equation. You know, we actually probably think about climate change. I, I think about climate change a lot. It's just like something in the back of my mind now. Uh, you could even say with the onset of climate anxiety that is a thing that, that we're all thinking about it. But as lovers of the outdoors and lovers of the wilderness, and this is a space where we must go to cope with things like climate anxiety or to cope with the woes of the world, not doing that just seems like it adds insult to injury. Not driving to go in. I mean, I, they're competing values. I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to mm-hmm. go in. Right. I'm not going to change my... I'm not going to drive up the gunflint less. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm probably driving up more to soothe my own anxiety about the climate. <laughs> there it is. That's the complexity <laughs> of what we're trying to break down. And that's why to even have this conversation, I think a lot of the reason the people don't stray into or wade into the water that we're now in is because you don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to come across as some insensitive person who doesn't care about the environment or the earth or the boundary waters. But it's just not registering on our trip planning at all the impact of getting to the boundary waters. And I think that that reality hopefully trickles down to somebody like Peter, who is dedicating his life to researching climate and how it impacts the boundary waters. But I mean, I think there are things that many of us do to adapt our behaviors in general. Like maybe like you drive a hybrid vehicle. Um, We like compost, you know, like there's all these ways that we try to live more sustainably and that's still a value. It's not like it's not. It's not an either or. Mm -hmm. It's not realistic to say we have to shape our whole life around these little steps or we don't care. Especially, I think, because we know that there are huge forces at play that are far greater than our individual decisions. Now, yes, if we all did some of those things, would it add up? Of course. But we're not going to compete with you know, energy resources, energy infrastructure, huge corporations that are mass polluters. And countries all over the world that are emitting O2, it gets, I mean, for me, I start to think like, well, man, it's just going to happen and there's no stopping it. I'll do my little part so that I feel good about who I am and how I live. It seems pretty bleak. Well, it starts with the individual and then maybe we can go to local government and if Cook County here on the edge of the Boundary Waters or St. Louis County or Lake County are doing anything. And there's maybe some things that could be put into that category. Not many. The Cook County Board of Commissioners don't talk about climate change very much. I watch all their meetings. It rarely comes up. Minnesota, the legislature, they're doing quite a bit, actually. In early February, the Minnesota legislature passed a bill It sets a requirement for the state's utilities to completely shift to carbon-free electricity generation by 2040. So the governor signed this bill in February. Just to narrow that gap a little bit, 
utility companies are going to have to reach 80% renewable generation by 2030 and then 100% by 2040. So this includes places like Ely and Grand Marais, Cook County, the North Shore, all around the Boundary Waters, where a municipality, a, a town, a city, where people get their electricity. So that's something that Minnesota's doing. At the federal level, there's quite a bit happening right now regarding climate change. During his State of the Union address on February 7th, President Joe Biden talked a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act and how the U.S. can lead the world to a clean energy future. Talked a lot about tax credits for buying electric vehicles and energy efficient appliances, building out 500,000 EV charging stations across the country. So it's it's something that is being addressed. So President Biden said in the State of the Union, they called climate change an existential threat. So it's something that gets discussed at the very least at the national, state, to a perhaps a lesser extent, local levels when it comes to government. So things are happening. Doesn't make me think any more about should Eric drive from Omaha. No, it doesn't. But I'm never going to not get out there. Mm-hmm. Right. Even if it's in Oak Savannah. But I think that's this other component that feels really important is, you know, these these smart guys are telling us it's changing. These smart guys are saying, maybe we can stop it. I'd like to believe them. I'll do my part as best I can while still going, driving up into the wilderness. But I, I believe at this point in my life that you know, it's a, that Buddhist philosophy of impermanence. Everything changes. The earth will continue to change in ways that we can try to predict and we can try to have an impact on. But there's a, a, a huge part of this is just accepting that things change. And accepting it is one of the most powerful things that you or I can do. Mm-hmm. And I, I experienced some peace in that. I asked Peter about that. Why should somebody who's listening to this episode care about climate change and its impact on the Boundary Waters? Here's what he had to say. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, why should, you know, if I'm going up the Boundary Water and it's still beautiful in 2023 or 2024 and have a great experience, why should I care that climate's changing, the forest's going to change? Well, some of those people going today, today, or next year will have kids or their siblings will have kids. So they'll have nieces and nephews. They'll have, they'll have grandkids. And if you want future generations to have the same experiences, then we need to act to try to preserve the climate so that we can maintain the kind of forests that give us that experience we have now. Uh, and so I think in part it's, because of those future generations. But I think also we need to, and this is just me, my opinion, stop looking at climate change impacts kind of one backyard at a time, you know, because we're relatively well off compared to people around the world. We have the opportunities to go and recreate in summer or winter in the boundary waters. Um, climate change, you know, by the time the boundary waters are radically changed, a big chunk of Bangladesh may be underwater and hundreds of millions of people may have lose, lost their homes and livelihoods because of climate change. And so I think from a moral standpoint, 
we all should be worried about this as well because of what it's going to mean for people who are less well off than we are around the world and for the legacy that we're going to leave future generations in both in this country and around the world in terms of impact um, on, on society as well as on nature and its biodiversity. Because if we don't stop climate change, there's going to be more and more damages in this country, storms, hurricanes, floods, wildfires, wildfire smoke that gets to the boundary waters. So that's another reason, like we've experienced in the last few years, times in Minnesota when you don't want to be outside because it's not healthy and being in the boundary waters, breathing wildfire smoke from Western Canada uh, at very unhealthy levels uh, is not a great experience. And so this notion that the Boundary Ward is, is a pristine natural area uh, isn't really so when we think about the whole world in its interconnected ways. So it's not necessarily about you or I. It's about the next generation. It's about two, three generations of what the Boundary Waters are going to look like for them and how our behavior now impacts the future. That's sort of what climate change and awareness of what we were doing, in some cases continue to do, to the environment and the atmosphere, what it means for the future. It's not necessarily about the oak tree saplings that we saw on the trail. It's about what's happening now that's impacting the future and how to slow and mitigate some of that. That's the complexity. It's hard to get people excited about that. Yeah. Especially when it's been hammered in over the last 10 years. Yeah. People are toning at, you know, starting to tune out a little bit more when it comes to the everyday things you can do to save the earth. Mm -hmm. At least that's the case for me. Oh, 100%. Like I look at a article like that one sitting in front of you and I wouldn't read it. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I don't think it's going to tell me anything I don't know at this point. And yeah, it's tough. Let's make this even more difficult. Oh, here we go. <laughs> so on the edge of the Boundary Waters. Yeah, I knew you were going to go here. Yep. Something that most people probably have also heard about a lot. Proposed copper nickel mine, twin metals mine. Right now, the outlook for that mine doesn't look very good. There's a 20-year ban that was put on them by the Department of Interior and the watershed where they would want to mine. They can't do it now. Could easily be reversed by the future administration, including after the 2024 election. If somebody wins who feels differently about that, off that moratorium goes. Legislation, not going to happen. The House of Representatives and Congress right now, there's no way that legislation is moving forward. So it's tied up because... There are people, including Democrats in Minnesota, who would like to see that mine there because we need those minerals for renewable energy. If you want to have electric vehicles and solar panels and wind farms, you got to have these minerals that are underneath, not even inside the Boundary Waters, but on the outside, on the edge of it. All over that watershed. Yeah, the, if you want to have them, here's this huge deposit of what you need to build the things that you say are going to save the planet. Yeah, massive deposits. It makes people want to bang their head against the desk because you have people going, we got to save the earth. We need electric vehicles and solar panels. But not from there. It's right. frustrating for people. And understandably so, if you have an objective 
overview of it. I say that as somebody who loves the Boundary Waters. Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely hold the opinion that, yes, we need renewables. No, not in my backyard. That is a, a hypocrisy that I exist in. It's difficult because the very thing that you need to save it can happens to be the most toxic industry on the planet. Well, I mean, it kind of makes me wonder. Do we just continue on our O2 track and let our kids play in the Oak Savannah? Or do we have what is inevitable acid mine drainage into our watershed and not fish anymore? I mean, if that was the choice, I'd know which I'd pick. I'd rather be catching largemouth bass in the boundary waters than no fish at all. I mean, what about you? Well, How do you think about it? I think that much like driving our own vehicle, putting the fate of the wilderness and climate change on a proposed mine on the edge of the wilderness is a unfair thing to Wait, equate. But that's not going to sell a newspaper or a magazine or drive a campaign or make for a great podcast episode. Right. But the copper nickel deposit under and on the outside of the wilderness is massive. It is on a global scale, massive. How much is there? But even that isn't going to stop climate change. Even if they have twin metals mine, it's not going to stop or create climate change. It's, it's beyond that. It's all so vast that how could one even begin to I know. register yeah. what it is that we're trying to break down into if I should drive up the Gunflint Trail or not today? That's where it starts to feel so overwhelming. So I asked Peter about the hopelessness feeling. Here's what he had to say. I think as individuals, sometimes people feel hopeless, but that is a false uh, uh, way to look at the world because uh, it's always been small fractions of society that actually have been the ones who engineered and pushed society to change. And so, you know, it sounds sometimes maybe trivial and or like a cop-out to say, well, voting matters, but... Um, Voting can matter, and so can many other kinds of activities where we try to educate, shape, inspire, catalyze positive change in our business communities, in our governments, in our, uh, all of our local and uh, national and international associations and organizations. And so, you know, we need systemic change. We need to hold our business and, and industry and corporations to account to reduce their carbon footprint to become carbon neutral and at the national scale. And so we have roles in pushing this as well. And so I think uh, it's going to take all of those things because there's no one thing we can do that's going to solve this. But I think we will do all of those things. And my only concern is that we need to do them faster. Let me tell you what I like about that. 
It comes back to what I was saying earlier about what I can control. And I can control what happens inside my brain and my body, whether I feel hopeful or hopeless. And I can do what I can do, and I can team up with who I can team up with, and I can affect as much change as I can in my community and in my immediate world as best as I can and have these conversations that keep me hopeful. That's what I can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of my hope is in that wilderness. It's a beautiful thing to be on a canoe trip and not have to think about anything other than what's in front of you and what you're going to be doing at camp and where the fish might be biting tonight and how the bugs are doing and all that stuff's actually enjoyable to think about in comparison to what we've been talking about for the last half hour. Yeah, thanks for sticking around this long if you're still listening. Well, the reason for this episode is largely because it's a different way, hopefully, to think about this topic as what it's become at this point because people are so entrenched in whatever issue... It is related to climate change in the Boundary Waters that I'm not sure if people are tuning in anymore to sort of the political side of things or even to the climatologists and the scientists. These geniuses who are so passionate about what they're researching and their message, it can be easy to just not listen. And it's happening and there's still hope. That's what the scientists say, is that there's still hope. I really, I liked hearing that. Mm -hmm. That actually brought me back into the game a little bit. Like that that this person who studies all this and sees everything that's happening still believes. And that you as the individual can do something, but you're probably just gonna do a little bit, and that's okay. You can feel okay about doing a little bit, whatever that might be. Well, I'll keep looking for ways I can do my thing. You know, I avoid this these conversations and this issue because it adds another stress to life. But if I can wait through it to this point in the conversation, it does remind me like, okay, what's the next thing I can do? I don't have to do it all. What's just the next thing? Mm-hmm. And all I have to do is the next thing and that's all I got to worry about. And I say on this episode, we should give the climate scientists the last word. I don't want to be all doom and gloom. You know, Lee, Freilich and I have been, Lee's one of my collaborators, not on the Before Warm project, but on some of our work on fire and works with Lee and Rebecca and others, Rebecca Montgomery and others for many years. But Lee in particular is sometimes called Dr. Doom. Um, and... Um, I don't think that, that a doom and gloom message is always the best thing. Uh, a, because you don't want people to be hopeless, especially when, when having hope and having uh, a feeling that we can make change is important. And so I think we will actually solve climate change. Um, hopefully it's in my lifetime or yours. Uh, if not, then the world's going to have a lot of hurt, you know, in 30, 40, 50, 60 years that's not going to just be in places like Bangladesh. It's going to be, you know, in Minnesota because there's going to be more tornadoes and more more down trees and more ice storms and more um, 
floods and and more droughts, and it's going to impact agriculture and urban infrastructure and people's lives. And uh, so I think the fact that we can do something about this because we have all the tools. We don't need any new technology, although new technology would help. We just have to make a decision that we want to put a stop to climate change as soon as possible and actually put those practices uh, into practice, so to speak, um, both in our own lives and locally and globally, so that we we turn this around in a decade or two rather than in five or six. I just sing when I paddle, feeling not thinking if the strokes are true. We're gonna get through to the other side. Out in the night, the waves beat the shore. You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar. Rule me, rock me in my dreams. You can roll me, rock me in my dreams. So I like to sing, I love to dance. I play the fool if I got the chance. All around the campfire light. All around. Campfire light all round, all round, all round. The campfire light.